Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in starting a social enterprise, especially in an emerging market, well, frankly, it could be in any market. And if you want to learn more about what that could look like, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a founding partner at the consulting firm We Scale Impact which focuses on assisting early stage social enterprise clients in emerging markets. But before I introduce you to Alden Zeka, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you a sneak peek into the episodes and the professions we're going to be featuring that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org. And the sign up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Alden Zeka, a founding partner at WeScale Impact, which focuses on supporting early stage social enterprise clients, especially in emerging markets. WeScale Impact leverages 30 plus years of broad range executive expertise and work in over 35 countries. Alden is also a senior fellow at the Center for the Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship, also known as CASE, at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. And he serves as a managing director of Boston-based angel investment group, Sidecar Angels. In addition to various consulting roles, Alden has held operating positions in luxury travel, analytical instruments, transportation and logistics, and skincare distribution companies, and he's launched multiple successful multi-million dollar multinational initiatives, and he's raised more than $50 million in capital for ventures. And if you're interested in learning more about how you can break into social entrepreneurship, please check out the show notes for this episode to see if Alden's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. Alden, welcome to Time for Coffee. I know you're not caffeinated on coffee, but you're certainly ready to go, aren't you? Absolutely, Andrea. Thanks a lot. And yeah, as you said, I'm not a coffee drinker, but uh, totally understand the appeal of it for many people. I just never picked up the liking to it. Okay, well, I probably drink enough coffee for the two of us. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
Before we get into what you're doing now as a founding partner at WeScale Impact and as a managing director of Sidecar Angels, I thought it would be a good idea for us, Alden, to spend just a little time here at the outset making sure that we're all on the same page about social enterprises. So would you mind explaining to our listeners what the heck a social enterprise is, how they operate, maybe how they're different from a nonprofit and how long they've been around? Sure. So social enterprises, at least in my definition, and there are different definitions that people have. It's not a term yet that has a single standard definition, but social enterprises are organizations that can be for-profit or non-profit, that are pursuing as part of their core mission, improving their world, improving society, improving their situation for the people and the nature around them. So often these are businesses in or organizations in healthcare, education, food production, sanitation, and the like. And so it's a matter of, it could be for-profit businesses, as I said, it could be non-profit organizations, and all of these working toward their goal to make the world a better place. They've been around now for, I would say, the first ones have been around for, well, if we reclassified them, probably several decades. But really, the first social enterprises recognizes social enterprises started about 20 years ago. And then since then, it's been a growing, one could say movement in some respects, but I think it's more actually an evolution of business and an evolution of how the world and organizations function, that we are coming to a greater and greater recognition that not only because it's the right thing to do, but in order to be successful, in order to be sustainable, and I don't just mean sustainable in terms of ecological aspects, but just sustainable in terms of ongoing, we have to be doing things that align with improving the world, improving society, because more and more consumers are buying in that direction, but also because if we have limited resources, we need to be smart about how we use them to enable a better and more sustainable from a resource perspective situation. Love it. Recognizing, Alden, that none of us has a crystal ball, none of us is able to see into the future. Based on your decades of experience in a whole range of industries, how do you think the current downturn in our global economy due to the coronavirus may impact social enterprises? I think there's going to be a few impacts on social enterprises because of the economic recession that we're now in. I think one is there will be greater interest in people entering the field as employees, as workers. I mean, I think that's terrific. And I think part of that is because other opportunities will be going away or will be greatly reduced or constrained. So it's unfortunate as to what's causing it. But I think that that's a positive impact. I think that having more people going into the field will make innovation, make new discoveries or new approaches happen faster, and they will be more resilient. I think at the same time, though, I don't necessarily think that the percentage of organizations, social enterprises that will be successful will necessarily increase. But I do think 
purely because of raw numbers of more of them being started, more of them attracting people and workers, that there will be more, therefore, that are successful. But I'm, I'm not convinced that the percentage will increase of success on a per 100 businesses started basis. But I do think that's a positive impact overall. And I think that this recession is teaching us all about healthcare for sure, as well as other broad societal issues that we need to think about and focus on. So I see it as positive for the field overall. Excellent. Well, that's a good segue into what you're doing now at WeScale Impact. You are a founding partner. You launched it along with your partners, this consultancy in February of 2016. What was the inspiration back then behind founding WeScale Impact? My fellow founders and I, and there are three of us who are the founding partners, the three of us had all founded and worked in social enterprises for several years. And we were thinking about how we could continue to call it give back, call it positively impact the world. One approach would, of course, have been to go on and found a new social enterprise or continue to scale the ones that we had already founded and grow them to be bigger. But after several discussions and phone calls, we decided at least for the three of us that we felt the best opportunity and the way to have even more impact positively on our world was to found WeScale Impact as a consulting firm to help other social entrepreneurs grow and scale their own businesses and their own organizations. Again, I use the word business and organization somewhat interchangeably, even though some of them will and have been nonprofits. We felt that using our experience, we could work with generally younger, less experienced founders or executives at social enterprises and share our knowledge, share our basically pains and answers that we had gone through trying to grow our own enterprises, and that that way we could multiply the impact that we might be able to have as any individuals by basically helping to train and share that knowledge and those skills with many other social entrepreneurs. It kind of sounds like to me like rent a mentor. It is to an extent. In fact, one of our core offerings is that we act as coaches or mentors to founders and executive teams of social enterprises where we will meet with them on a monthly or sometimes biweekly basis, often virtually because they may be located in a different place than we are, to help guide them and share with them. And we're usually very clear that we are not there to always give them a single answer and make them take it, so to speak. We're not a doctor in that respect where we're giving them a prescription and saying, take this and you'll definitely be better. And if you don't take this, you'll continue to be in a worse strait. Rather, our approach is to train and teach. So we tell them, we will share our advice. We will give you recommendations, but it is up to you to decide whether to implement those, whether it's right for you, and if you don't take our advice, we're not going to get mad. We're basically going to say, that's okay, because you've grown even in your thinking and the way you've analyzed the situation to determine if that advice is worthwhile or not for you. So kind of skills transfer, I would say, or education is a core part of our philosophy and the way that we approach working with clients or what we call beneficiaries. 
Got it. Could you give us an example, Alden, of one or more of your clients, what they're doing and how you may have helped them, helped guide them? Sure. Happy to. So an example of an organization I recently worked with was an e-commerce startup in Africa. And people might say, well, e-commerce, really, how is that improving society? Well, their model is to get foreign living relatives of their customers to purchase product and then they ship it and deliver it to people's homes in Africa. And often this is food, which is obviously critically important and food related things. So I was helping them to think through their long-term strategy. How should they be approaching the purchasers who live outside of Africa more to be more efficient? But also a lot of it was working with them to think about their operations. How can they be more efficient in their warehousing, their shipping, the selection of their products, for example, in order to be able to reach more beneficiaries, more of their customers, and deliver better products to them? All of this was done by video call or by email. I did not travel to visit them in Africa at all during the entire project. And it was a, an eight-month-long project where we met every two to four weeks, depending on the cycle, in order to give them advice. And typically, it was a one- to two-hour call. So that type of coaching or mentorship is a very common model in what we do. What percentage of social enterprises, Alden, are self-funded versus those that may need to raise money? I guess what we would call like seed funding from angel investors. I don't have any hard numbers on the percentages, but I would say that the majority of social enterprises do take some form of outside capital to either start up or at least to grow. However, much of that capital is often coming in the form of donations, grants, or those types of non-recourse often or non-equity sharing contributions. So a lot of the grants will come from foundations or sometimes from governmental or quasi-governmental aid agencies. And so that's a lot of the capital going into the field. My feeling, again, I don't have any hard numbers on this, but my feeling is that probably about 50% though, or roughly half of social enterprises at some point will take in external capital that is either in the form of debt that they have to repay or in fact in terms of equity sharing so that the investor actually owns part of the business or the organization going forward. But that 50%, that's just a really a gut feeling rough guess. I don't have any hard numbers on that. And do you think that the money is going to be tighter today than it was a year ago? Uh, I definitely think money will get tighter now. I think with the global recession caused by the COVID pandemic, that you'll see restrictions on capital, both from the what I'll call investor side, again, those lending or actually buying into a business, and from the grant funder donor side. I think there's going to be a tremendous reduction in available capital to all these enterprises. And that's really unfortunate, but I do think that will be the situation probably for the next few years. I don't think this is a short-term couple of months reduction. I think it's a multi-year reduction. My hope is it would be much shorter, but I, my current outlook is that it will be longer. Mm. So in light of that, what advice do you have for our young listeners who may want to work for a social enterprise? How can they go about finding the ones that might be hiring now? Are there 
listservs? Are there websites where they might find those entry-level jobs or perhaps even internships? So I think, first of all, one of the things to keep in mind is this field does not pay well. And with less capital available, it will probably pay even less, unfortunately. So I think for those who are looking to enter this field, they need to understand that this is an industry that you enter because you're passionate about having an impact and improving the world. And that you can make a reasonable living at it. I'm not saying you can't, but it's not a field where you're going to go and suddenly be wealthy even after many years of work. With that in mind, I think that advice I would give to early stage career aspirants is to first narrow down the area of social enterprise that you might be interested in. Is it education? Is it agriculture? Is it sanitation? Is is it medicine or health? Because they're fairly different areas in terms of industries, how they work, the skills they may look for, and the roles they may offer. And then on top of that, I would add geography. Is the individual looking to work in the US? Are they looking to work in Latin America, look in Africa, look in Asia? Each of those will have different, of course, requirements from a visa and immigration perspective or work permit issue potentially, but also will offer different aspects culturally. And if they could require different language skills, then they've just narrowed it down to broadly industry and geography. Then they can begin, in my opinion, to look at what are specific job opportunities. Unfortunately, I'm not aware of a good global system to sort that through. There are regional listservs, there are regional contacts that exist or regional networks that exist, again, often by industry. But most of the jobs in this field tend to be found either through word of mouth or personal contacts and networks, as similar with many other industries, or they favor hiring people who are already local to their geography, their city even. And then each city has its own job boards and things of that sort. So I think that makes it more difficult if someone's, even if they're willing to relocate to a new city, they may have to tap into something that is specific to that city. They'd have to learn about it just to find it. Okay. That makes sense. Let's talk about Sidecar Angels, where you're a managing director. Is it meant to be a complement to WeScale Impact in that at WeScale Impact, you're able to evaluate those early stage ventures from various industries for potential investment? Or is it something completely different? It's actually something completely different. The two organizations other than myself have no overlap. There are no businesses that would be suitable for the one that would also be suitable for the other. Sidecar Angels invests dominantly in the Northeast United States. We're Boston-based, and we take a look mainly at the greater New England area for investment. We invest, by definition, only in for-profit businesses. And it's a fairly traditional investment group in terms of what it's looking for in the businesses it invests in. Of course, one would argue there's overlap in that both organizations work with early stage or startup businesses, but the nature of the businesses is completely different. Now, that said, they are very complementary for me in terms of the skills that they allow me to use and the knowledge that I gain from each definitely helps me when I'm applying it to the other. However, the organizations themselves are completely separate. And again, other than myself, have no overlap at all. Okay. I think it's super interesting. And I, of course, have the advantage of having looked at your really impressive 
resume. You've had such a wide ranging professional life, Alden, zigging and zagging all over the place. Let's flash back to when you were in college. It may be surprising for our young listeners to learn that you majored in chemical engineering at Princeton University, where you made it through in just three years, and you went directly into a master's program, also in chemical engineering, also at Princeton. Did you know what you were going to do with those degrees when you graduated? I thought I knew what I was going to do with those degrees when I graduated. (laughs) And for the first maybe 12 to 18 years after my life, as you said, took some zigs and zags and took some twists and turns, mostly positive, by the way. But that led me on a completely different path. Looking back at when I was just out of school, starting my first job, at that time, I would have said I absolutely knew what I wanted to do, absolutely knew what my career path was. I could not have been more mistaken. I think when I got out of college, my vision was that I would have maybe one or two employers in my entire career and that I would take a, at the time, fairly standard trajectory of getting hired in and slowly being promoted up the ladder and so on and so forth. Now I look back 30 plus years on and I think I've had something around 12 or 14 different employers at this point. So it's a completely different journey. And I think that had someone told me, though, when I was 21, that in my now 50s be where I am, I would have laughed them off and thought they were crazy, to be honest. And I would have said, I absolutely disagree. I know exactly where I'm going and what I'm doing. But that, of course, did not come to be the case. (laughs) Well, you and me both, Alden. What about extracurricular activities when you were an undergrad. Are there any that in hindsight you might say had an influence on your professional life? Oh, without question. When I was in college, my only really extracurricular activity was I was part of the rowing team. I had walked on to the rowing team as a freshman and I'm very small and able to get a position as a coxswain on the team. And For those of you who don't know, most people think of rowers as large individuals. The coxswain is the person who steers the boat and is somewhat akin to maybe a jockey in a horse race in terms of both role but also in the stature that they're looking for. So it worked for me physically and that I could do that. And it absolutely changed my life, not just while I was in college. Most of my friends from college are people I met on the team. But that was actually what completely changed my career path. Two years out of university, I trained for and try out for the U.S. national rowing team. And unfortunately, though, to do it, I had to have come to a tough decision of do I stay in my job at my career, pursue this potential opportunity and recognize that I'm basically abandoning a certain career path. And when it came down to it, I decided to leave my employer and pursue rowing. And I did for several years. Unfortunately, never made the U.S. Olympic team. I did get to try out for two different Olympic teams, but wasn't selected. And it has been with me ever since as a very positive influence that shaped me, not just in my career choices, of course, but also gave me certain skills, such as teamwork, such as hard work, that I think have benefited me ever since. Oh, my gosh. What an incredible story. 
What was your first job, Alden, when you graduated from grad school? And how did you get it? First job out of grad school was working for Procter & Gamble. I was in a laboratory setting. I was assigned in an R&D role, the research and development role, to, in the lab, develop new and improved anti-acne skin cleansers for teenagers in Asia. And it was my role to think about what this product needed to do and make it, but also what we wanted the product to be like in terms of color, in terms of smell, in terms of texture and feel, and all those aspects that really had little to do with cleaning the skin, but had everything to do with would people buy this product? So that was my first job out of college, and I loved it. I really enjoyed it. And again, looking back, I might have wanted to stay in that for decades. I got the job because the prior summer, I had interned with that group, and they had liked the work I'd done. I had enjoyed them. When I left at the end of the summer, they made me an offer to come back and to work full-time, and I had accepted that. That internship that influenced me tremendously and then gave me that opportunity for that first job out of school. Gotcha. And you could have easily stayed on the product development side of the business world. But in fact, you moved into the front office pretty early in your career. I I would say it's probably within the first four years or so of getting your master's that you founded and managed an FDA-regulated over-the-counter drug and cosmetic production and distribution company. It's a mouthful. How did that happen, Alden? <laughs> it happened in part because of my experience having worked at P&G and knowing a bit about skincare and, and some of the regulations therein in that industry. And it came about that through a friend, I heard about a small business that was basically for sale. The founding partners there, the founding two gentlemen, had decided to liquidate the business because one of them was moving out of state and the other one didn't want to take it over. And so got a business partner who was really the main funding behind acquiring that business from the two founders. And then I was tasked to run it. I mean, that was our agreement. He funded it largely and would give some advice, but it was my rule to run the business. And so pretty quickly, moved from being in a lab, as you said, to being on the front lines, helping to run the business. And we had employees and, you know, I obviously had to decide if they were, should stay on in the business because they came with the business when we bought it out or not. And then how to try and grow and scale that business. And it was a tremendous learning. I really got a lot out of it. The business was not overly successful. I'll be the first to say that we definitely made, or I made several mistakes along the way. But it was a great business education for me. It was also a great life education. I had employees who did not have a college degree, had honestly probably struggled to make it out of high school or to graduate high school. And I had to be able to work with them and relate to them on a day to day, which was a very new experience for me. And it was very positive, opened my view up toward others' situations in life and how their backgrounds would be very different than mine and how I had to adapt to work with them. You did actually have a big success 
as an entrepreneur, in fact, as a social entrepreneur, how long after that first business went under did you found Sproxel? And how do you think you took the learning from that first experience to help Sproxel become profitable and grow to operate in seven countries? So it was, I think, about 20 years after founding the first business that I co-founded Sproxel. And so there was, of course, other experiences in between the two, growth and learning on my part therein. So it was a combination of that couple of decades uh, that I was able to bring to Sproxel. And my co-founder at Sproxel was the technical genius. He's still there. The business is still running. I'm no longer there day to day. I do sit on the board still and contribute in other ways. But he was the technical genius and I was bringing the business experience. So that was what my rule. And I think those early days in entrepreneurship really proved to be extremely helpful in finding solutions that were very low cost or no cost on how to do things, really thinking how to find answers to business problems. How do we find you know, employees that we would pay them a fair wage but we didn't want to spend a lot in recruiting them or finding them. So what are some of these more alternative approaches that an entrepreneur honestly needs to know, not just can use, but needs to know that will reduce costs for the business and make it so that we could bootstrap to get started and to get going. And that was very helpful for me to be able to leverage that and use that. We should also let our listeners know that you spent nine years at Sproxel. So this was by no means a flash in the pan. Oh, absolutely not. You know, and the one thing I've learned is that I think all entrepreneurs, whether they be social entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs in general, have this view that everything will be rosy, that everything will go well. And, and by the way, I think that's a requirement to be an entrepreneur or at least a successful entrepreneur. Because if you don't have that optimistic view I think that you will lose faith along the way. You'll get discouraged when problems happen and you won't be able to push through them. So I'm definitely not knocking the optimistic view at all. I think it's very much a positive and a requirement. However, I also think that most entrepreneurs believe that they will be huge successes or their business will be a huge success in an incredibly short period of time. And that's usually not the case. Most successful businesses take years to develop And they take many years to get to a position of profitability, if ever. And unfortunately, along the way, actually, most startups never survive. So it's really that those almost storied few, so to speak, that get to be successful. Yet those are the ones we often hear about. One of the things I like to share with entrepreneurs often is a little bit more realistic view of what happens at a startup, how the process goes and the timeline not to scare them, but so that they understand the choices they are making and so that if they continue, they are better informed. But it's also sometimes a filter because those entrepreneurs that decide to drop out probably would not have been successful anyway because as they met challenges later on, they would not have been able to push through. So it's probably better not start the enterprise rather than start it and maybe go bankrupt in three, four or five years. Well, speaking of challenges, I try to ask 
all time for coffee guests, Alden, to share a time in their professional life when they really struggled, when they faced immense challenges and sometimes fail. And often the failure is what provides the raw material or the inspiration, the lessons learned that lead to future successes. Could you share an example, a story of a time in your professional life? It could be that first business that you bought or that you invested in when you struggled. Most importantly, though, to help us understand what the lesson you learned was and how you persevered. Sure. Unfortunately, I can probably think of many more than one example. I have had businesses that I founded and failed and so on and so forth. But I'll pick one example, which is maybe a little bit atraditional from some of your other guests. I've had a couple of really bad bosses in my career. And I'll pick one example about a bad boss and what I learned from that. So this boss was great in the interview. Right. I, I interviewed. I, I thought he was terrific. Company sounded great. I decided to move forward and take the job. But once taking the job, fairly quickly, it became evident that he was a really bad people person. He was verbally abusive to all of his subordinates. He was someone who took credit for our work when it was good and was quick to point at us as team, as staff, as failure when work was bad. Every success was his, every failure was ours, I guess is the way I put it. And every day felt like I was what I would picture, I guess, as in military boot camp. He came in, he was a clock watcher. If you were two minutes late, you got yelled at. And we were all white collar people in the business. And, you know, he would berate you for small things. And it just became very uncomfortable. And so after a while, I went to him and I said, I've figured out that I could do my job, I could do a part time. My job wasn't as demanding as both I had thought, he had thought initially. And I said, you know, I'm willing to do this. Give me a couple of days off a week. I'll take them without pay. And in essence, I knew I'd be happier because I'd be there less. But he decided, he said, no, you have to be here five days a week. You have to show up on time. You have to leave on time. But by the way, I don't care what you do at your desk as long as you get your job done. If you want to watch movies at your desk or, or just do other things, go ahead. And when he said that to me, it sounded wonderful. But on the other hand, after a couple of weeks of that, I realized it was completely degrading. And I just didn't want to do that. So I ended up leaving the company. No regrets. Very glad I did. And the big lesson I take away from that, a couple of lessons. One, when interviewing for a new job, I would absolutely recommend to all of your listeners that they try and talk with someone who is in the group they're going to be joining, talk with someone at least who's in the company, they can, to try and get an honest perspective of what it's like. Because sometimes in the interview process, it looks a lot rosier than reality. Second thing I took away from it was how not to treat employees, how not to treat subordinates, and to really be a much more empathetic manager, to be a manager that really cared a lot more about my employees not just as employees, but as people. And I think that's an incredibly valuable lesson I've taken forward. I try and do that as much as I can when I'm working with other people. I'll be honest, I'm probably not perfect. In fact, I know I'm far from perfect in that regard, but I do think it helped me grow as a manager, as a leader in a very positive way. Thank you so much for sharing that, Alden. I can also say I've worked for 
some pretty lousy managers. And I'm curious if you could have skipped that experience and not worked for such an awful manager. It really sounds like he was among the worst. Would you do that? Could you imagine yourself not having gone through that experience as unpleasant as it was? Well, I could definitely imagine not having gone through the experience. That's for sure. I think in retrospect, would I repeat the experience if I you know, had the choice? I would say yes, but. And the but is I should have left earlier. Why would I repeat the experience? One, I did grow and gain from it. Yes. Although he was not good, I got to meet some tremendous positive colleagues who I'm still friends with now, decades later, that I would not have met otherwise. And I got to have some very positive, both professional and personal life growth and skill growth through that experience. But yes, I would have left earlier rather than staying for a few years. I probably should have left after the first year. And so that's what I would have changed. But I would go back and do it again, I think. Yeah. I wonder if it's because it happened early in your life that you felt that you had to stay, that you had to just put your head down and grit your way through the challenges. And certainly if you had been older with more experience under your belt, if you would have been quicker to leave. Possibly true. In addition, I think it's had I felt that there were many other opportunities available to me as alternative at the time, I might have been quicker to leave. I perceived it as a situation where finding another job at the time, I thought it would have been difficult. You know, obviously, hindsight again proves that things work out. But at the time, I thought, oh, it'll be very hard or very difficult to find another job. It will not look good maybe on my resume, it will be difficult potentially to explain and so on and so forth. And so I think all of those are factors, you're right, Andrea, contributed to maybe staying longer than I should have or staying longer than, again, in retrospect, I really wanted to. Okay, thanks so much. Final time for coffee question, Alden. If you sure. could go back to Princeton and do it all over again, but based on the immense wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Well, first, let me rephrase the question a little bit because I'm not convinced I have immense wisdom now. I think I have more knowledge now, maybe a little more wisdom, but immense, boy, that just seems so so difficult to live up to. Uh, <laughs> with that in mind, I would give myself two key pieces of advice, one on the personal level and one on the professional level. Let me start with the professional or academic level. The advice I'd give myself is to take more electives, to take more classes outside of my major and to diversify the learning that I could have. I think I was too narrowly focused at Princeton. And there were lots of reasons why. And again, obviously, we can't redo life. But that would be the professional or academic advice I give myself. I think more important, though, is on the personal aspect, I was very much a hyper-focused nerd in college. And I'll be the first to say it. I had my academics, I had my athletics, and I basically had nothing else. And that was unfortunate. And I have shared that with some of my classmates at college reunions that I really wish I had gotten to know more people better as people and that I had more of a, a, a social life and a social interaction with my classmates and my peers because I think I missed out a lot on life experiences of that sort while in college. And so I think it's a matter of not skewing heavily one way or the other but finding a balance 
between or amongst academics, extracurriculars, whatever those may be for the individual, and social life. And trying to find a good balance amongst all three of those, I think, makes for a much happier experience, a much richer experience, and long-term in life, a much better foundation. So that's what I, the advice I'd give myself if I could go back to college. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And just for our young listeners, the reason that I ask guests like Alden that question is not because he is going to get in the time machine and rewind the clock to when he was at Princeton, but more so because we do find when we leave school and have different experiences and it gives us a perspective that we didn't have when we were in school. And we're hoping that you will be the beneficiaries of that wisdom. And P.S. Alden was being much too modest when he said that he didn't deserve the moniker or the description of immense wisdom. So I'm sorry to push back on you, Alden, but I'm going to do it. And I'm also going to thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community, even though you prefer not to enjoy a coffee. If we were sitting in person, maybe you would have a sparkling water or I don't know, some kind of iced tea or something like that. But I want to thank you for sitting down with me virtually today to share your wisdom and your experiences with me and the T4C community. This was just terrific. Well, thanks, Andrea. I've had a ball doing this and I am always happy to share with other people about what my life experience has been. And if that can help them in any way to improve their own life experience, then that is a wonderful reward for me. And I just love being able to do that. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to take the time and to share that with others and for being a platform that others might be able to benefit from my life experiences. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.